All right. Well, welcome to the first episode of Answer Anyone with Cy Ten Brugenkate. And uh, brother, I'm sure I just messed up your last name again. I think I messed up that U vowel. No problem. It was pretty close. Um, I thought there was no English word that had the same U as in my last name, but then somebody said the word push. So yeah. Brugenkate, it's the same U as in the word push. So my last name is Ten Brugenkate. Yes. And a lot of times people want to leave the 10 off my last name, but um, I was speaking at a conference not too long ago, and uh, I said, I see you got some books on your book table back there by Corey Bohm. And they all yelled out, Ten Bohm. And I said, why do you leave it off of my name? <laughs> ten is a prefix in Dutch like van or de, so that's my, I know it's a mouthful, but that's my whole last name. Yeah. Letters and all. Well, I got to say, man, I've really, really been looking forward to doing this podcast with you. And um, for all of our viewers, I'm sure there's going to probably be some some glitches we need to iron out here. But, um, you know, due to the miracle of technology, I'm up here in Chicagoland in the Fox Valley area of Illinois. And my brother Cy is down in Texas, God's country. Of course, it's all God's country. And um we're, through the miracle of technology, we're able to talk and have a conversation about defending the truth of the Christian message. So uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for watching. If you're listening later on via the podcast, I uh, just want to say thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing to the Think Institute Network. And I also want to say, too, that you can support the work that we're doing by going to patreon.com slash answer anyone, patreon.com slash answer anyone so uh so brother Sai, man how's life been for you lately oh it's been interesting uh, if you've been following me i've just got back from a, a round trip around the u.s i said i drove around the block about 7200 miles i was um down here in texas about an hour and a half south of east of houston and i drove up to a conference in muskogee oklahoma and then from there i went up to moscow idaho where i spent a month and then from there, I drove all the way across to Mansfield, Ohio, and I visited my friend Tony Miano along the way in Idaho, in Davenport. And then um, from Ohio, I went down to the Founders, Founders Conference in Cape Coral, Florida, and then I drove back. I stopped in in Pensacola to visit my friend Eric Hoven, then I came back to Port Arthur here in Texas, and I think it was at least 7,200 miles. It was quite a trip, and uh, thankfully, the Lord brought me through it. And for those of you who have been following my ministry, he brought me through it without any flats, because I've had five blowouts on my low-profile tires, and not this time. So, <laughs> well, praise God for that, man! Wow. So, um, well, well, glad you arrived safely back at home. And you know, the topic that we're discussing today is—it's one of these questions that, if it's not handled well, I think, Sai. Tell me if you agree with this. This is a question, if you don't know how to respond, it can send the believer off on some pretty crazy rabbit trails. And um, and, and really, it can get the, the Christian who wants to defend God's truth off on some tangents that um, really ultimately not only don't defend God's truth, but, but really give the unbeliever or the skeptic um, sort of an undue advantage, you might say. Yeah, I'd say the biggest problem is that uh, we end up defending belief in something that we don't believe in. We, right. we end up defending uh, faith in a, in a probability. And in church, we don't talk about a probability. I was not saved by a probability. In church, we say nothing can separate me from the love of the Father. And then we go out and we talk about a probability. So not only the rabbit trails that we go through, but we end up talking about a God that we don't believe in. Yeah. And I can remember reading a quote from C.S. Lewis many years ago. And he said that the weakest he felt in his faith was when he just finished successfully defending it. And when I defended my faith that way, I knew exactly how he felt because I felt the same way. I would just finish a, a, a wonderful defense of m what I thought was my faith with this evidential type argument, and I would feel hollow, and I didn't know why. And it wasn't until many years later that I discovered why, because I wasn't talking about the God that I believed in. In church, I worship a certainty, and I was defending my faith in a probability. And thankfully, by the grace of God over the years, that has changed, and I've never felt that way after defending my faith in a biblical manner. Man, praise God. Well, there's going to be a lot to unpack there. Um, Cy, there, there may be some folks who are not as familiar with your ministry or you know the work that you do and kind of who you are. Can we just start there? Who is Cy Tenbruggen Kate? Well, I'm, a, um, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. My parents are Dutch. My father was actually born and raised in Indonesia. 
but there was a Dutch right? colony there. His parents were Dutch. Yeah, he spent uh, three years in the Japanese concentration camp. Quite a history, but uh, they've wow. both since uh, gone to be with the Lord. And um, about uh, a little over a year ago, I moved down to uh, Port Arthur in Texas, and I'm working with a church, Trinity Baptist Church down here in uh, Port Arthur. Although I'm a associate Reformed Presbyterian, that's my denomination. A wonderful pastor up in Canada, Steve Richardson. And they're going through a lot of persecution with this COVID thing. So um, I'd appreciate prayers for that. But anyhow, I, I grew up. And um, I went to school for law and security. Actually, I was going to be a cop. I don't think a lot of people know that. And I ended up being the valedictorian of the graduating class. And I decided not to do it. Um, I had other family members who were doing what the trade in Canada is called stationary engineering. And they're boiler operators by trade. And you need a, a, a license to operate these boilers because if something happens to them, they could blow up and destroy a city block. Just Google boiler explosion and you can see what I mean. So wow. my license was for uh, steam generation, but I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know when I was saved. Um, I know there's people who say that if you don't know when you're saved, then you're not a Christian. Well, I normally ask them, when did you start loving your mother? And if they can't tell me when they started loving their mother, I guess I say, I guess you don't love your mother. Doug Wilson comes up with the uh, example. He says, um, imagine um, a young man, he's saved from drowning when he's 16 years old. That'll make it on the six o'clock news. But imagine um, parents taking a young child to swim lessons every week for his entire life. And how arrogant would it be for the man who was saved from drowning to say, well, you can't swim because you, you weren't saved from drowning on the six o'clock news. Wow. So I grew up in a home where Jesus' love was lived and shown, and I've not known a day when I didn't profess Christ as Lord. I'm not saying that I was born a Christian. I just don't know when I was saved. So that being the case, um, growing up in a Christian home, I wanted my friends to become Christians. So I had a passion for a defense of my Christian faith for my entire life. And I would devour these arguments and these debates. It came to a point in um, about 2014, I believe it was, where I was working on a website. And it was a point-and-click website, very similar to the website that I have now, proofthatgodexists.org. And um, I had taken all of these difficult arguments and I've, I dumbed them down to my level, like I'm a stationary engineer, a boiler operator. And I dumped them down to, uh, you know, these very difficult arguments, the cosmological, teleological, ontological, and I made them understandable for, uh, you know, people at what I would say at my level, because I'm just the average person out there. I'm not a PhD in anything. I don't have a degree behind my name. And so I would uh, dumb them down to my level and then use these arguments with my colleagues at work, and I'd get them shoved down my throat. My, my Christian friends love them, but my mm -hmm. unbelieving friends, they would just, you know, they would tear me to shreds with these arguments, and I didn't know why. Wow. And what I came to after I came to understand a biblical defense of my faith is that most of them are terrible arguments. They're illogical. They make logical blunders. But the problem is that the conclusion is true. God does exist. And all Christians know that God exists. So they end up loving these arguments because the conclusion is true and not realizing, not realizing that they're terrible arguments. Hmm. So I shoved this um, idea for my website for about two years. I just shoved it, you know, put it on the back burner. And I just did not... Um, I didn't pursue it. It never affected my faith. I still had a strong faith, but it affected my desire to share my faith. But I still, in that um, hiatus, um, I still loved listening to debates. And um, by the grace of God, um, I was shown the Bonson-Stein debate, a Greg Bonson, Christian versus Dr. Gordon Stein. And um, I listened to that debate. It's an audio debate. I think you can get it on, on YouTube. And it rocked my world. I did not know what happened when I listened to that debate, but I knew it was different. Hmm. And I listened to it, you know, over and over. Even if I listen to it now, I still get things out of it. But I found out that Dr. Bonson was espousing something known as presuppositional apologetics. So I Googled it. And back then, 2005 or so, I could find nothing on it. Really? Um, but I did find one podcast. It was called The Narrow Mind. And it was hosted by a fellow named uh, Gene Cook Jr. He was a pastor in Temecula, California. And I became a narrow mind addict. And if you you Google that, and actually on my website too, you could see I was a guest on that show about four different times. And um, I was listening to audio lectures by Dr. Bonson on Covenant Media Foundation. And for those of you who are following Covenant Media, they've released those um, those lectures, all of his lectures to a number of different outlets, and they're available for free. When I downloaded them, they were $2 a piece, and then they became $1.50 a piece. Now they're all free. So I, I voraciously downloaded these lectures and I listened to that show. And then um, I what I was doing is I was um, I started arguing or, or confronting unbelievers on their websites. Now, I didn't pursue them. What, ha what would happen is my website at the time had a tracker that if you posted a link to my website, uh, I would get a notification. So mm -hmm. I would I would go and normally an atheist blog and they'd be ripping me apart. They'd be ridiculing me for this website proof that like a track back link like they mentioned yeah, you on their blog me, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would tell me whenever anybody posted a link to my website. So I'd go to these blogs and I'd sign up. And they'd say, well, if that guy ever came here, you know, a lot of times they would uh, threaten me with physical violence <laughs> and, um, you know, for being so stupid or whatever. And I would show up and I'd say, well, I'm here. And it's very interesting because a lot of times I got instant respect. They said, first of all, that I would even come there. And then they, they usually soften their position about, uh, about the website. And then I would start to engage them. And I would do that for thousands of posts on some of the, these atheistic websites. And um, over the years, I think I was blocked from like six or seven atheist websites. One of them, one or two of them, I, actually, they, they deleted my entire conversation that I had with the atheists. And they would say, well, we deleted huh. them because, you know, your argument is so stupid. And I said, well, if my argument is so stupid, wouldn't you want all your atheist friends to see how stupid it was? And I know exactly why they deleted it, because it's an argument that they could not deal with. Right. And, and that's, so that was basically origins of um, me engaging unbelievers. And there's a, a fellow who saw that I was engaging these unbelievers on these blogs. And he said, Sai, will you come over to this one blog? I'm, I'm dealing with some atheists and it's not going so well. Um, would you mind helping me out? So I went over to that blog and I started engaging these atheists. And this fellow saw how powerful the argumentation was. And um, he said to me, Sai, um, I'm going to be a guest on a, on a radio show in Britain in a couple of weeks. I want you to listen to it. Now, I don't know if he'll end up listening to this podcast. I haven't talked to the fellow in ages. But I listened to his appearance on that show. It was unbelievable with Justin Brierley. And I thought it was not good. It was not presuppositional. It was not reformed. And um, I actually contacted Justin Briley. I contacted the host. I said, you need to get a presuppositionalist on here. And I know we're going to define our terms later on. And that's the type of apologetic that I espouse. And he said, well, who do you suggest? So I looked all over England to try and find a fellow who debated or who argued biblically, you know, like this apologetic is. Couldn't find anybody. Mm. I thought maybe somebody in North America might want to join the show because I didn't really do stuff like this. And then I believe he finally said, well, Sai, why don't you do it? So I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll be a guest on the show. And I was kind of nervous about it. And they actually had a woman at first who was supposed to engage me, but for some reason she backed out. And they found a fellow named Paul Baird. And um, we engaged each other, and both of us, nobodies. And it was number nine of the top ten downloads for almost a year. Wow. It was like you know something that people had never seen before and then i ended up debating him again on that same show about a year later and then a third time on eric hoven show and those are all of all available on my website proof if you go to the multimedia the audio section uh, with that paul baird and um like i say and the thing is the first one i was nervous man i used to get i used to get <laughs> upset stomach before i did stuff like this and this one went way better than i could ever have imagined and this is something i want to encourage uh, people with when they go to talk to an unbeliever because it went way better than I could ever have imagined. And then it was about a year after that, that I was talking to my pastor's wife at the time, my pastor, my cousin, I was talking to his wife and um, she said, you know, Sai, when you did that debate a year ago, I said, yeah. She said, my father, who's a retired Presbyterian pastor, he said, he, she said, he got up. It was like six in the morning that I was doing it. Cause it was, uh, I was on the phone. I was at British time and it was like 11 o'clock their time. She said her father got up and was praying the whole time that I was on the air. And I thought, wow. I said, that's, that's why it went so well, because I was prayed for. And I encourage mm-hmm. people that when you go to talk to an unbeliever, the most important thing is that you're prayed up because it's not you. It's not your argument. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to be used in their lives. Yeah. Amen. You can see the spiritual power of this apologetic. Uh, I, I listened to that episode of apolog or of, um, unbelievable of unbelievable that you did a few years ago and i i just i remember i think i had i'm not sure if i had already seen your film how to answer the fool at that point it wasn't out yet oh it wasn't okay no i I did the debate and the first one i think was 2010 and the film didn't come out till 2013 unless you saw them both afterwards i don't know i i you know what i may have done i may have seen the film and then gone back and searched you know through different podcasts for more of your stuff right um because i think it was around the same time that i listened to that and i just remember how gobsmacked um not only your opponent but even justin Briarly seemed to be you know and and i've i've had justin Briarly on my own podcast the think podcast and uh, we had a great conversation but of course he takes a very different approach to apologetics and so um and theology in general i would say yeah yeah that's true um well 
Before we get into defining our terms, let me just, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'll introduce myself. So my name is Joel Sedekase, and I am the founder and lead teacher of the Think Institute, which is an organization that seeks to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. I have a podcast called The Think Podcast with Joel Sedekase. That's me, yours truly. And um, the way I got to know, or the way I got into apologetics, I've always been someone who likes to argue uh, which is not a great reason necessarily to get into apologetics. But when I was a kid, my parents used to always tell me, Joel, you're going to become a lawyer someday. Or, or really what they would say is, Joel, stop being a lawyer. You know, stop, stop objecting to what we say. And uh, as I grew, I developed a real love for truth and for defining truth and for arguing for truth. And I didn't always, I wasn't always on the right side of every issue, but I, I enjoyed that back and forth. And um, I especially loved English class junior year because it, we would do these mock debates and I would get to debate one side and then go and debate another. Um, but it was when I, when, um, I started getting into these internet forums, especially these Catholic internet forums when I was in high school. And I started to engage with some of the Roman Catholics on that forum about Mary and, and uh, Jesus and the gospel and really started developing a love for engaging in theological debates. And I, I, um, got my, started out my career in business. I was, uh, I worked in real estate and then in the financial sector. Uh, and then I met my wife and she encouraged me to pursue a, a career in education. I wanted to become a teacher. And um, I started working at this Christian school in the city of Chicago, Chicago Hope Academy. And it was such a great experience. And they brought me in to teach economics, but also Bible. Christian school, somebody's got to teach Bible. And I'm teaching Bible and studying scripture and studying theology. And I would get into these great conversations with my students after class and after school. And I started to realize this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach theology, teach scripture, um, and really help students and, and help believers to discern truth from error and to really be able to defend the truth and to get those really tough questions answered. But I knew I was going to need more education. So I went to school, I went to seminary at Trinity, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, got my master's in philosophy of religion, uh, became a pastor for about five or six years. And then in starting in 2018, we left local church ministry and joined up with an organization called Campus Crusade, Campus Crusade for Christ. And it's under the umbrella of Crew, Campus Crusade, that we started the Think Institute. And by this point, um, I had been blogging about apologetics. I, I was I was into apologetics. Again, we're going to define that term in just a minute. But I started listening to this podcast called The Reformed Pubcast. And these guys on The Reformed Pubcast, Les and Tanner, were talking about their favorite mode of apologetics. And they were talking about presuppositional apologetics. And I had never heard of presuppositional apologetics, even though I'd been studying apologetics and evangelism in seminary. I didn't know about presuppositionalism. So I start doing searches for presuppositional apologetics. And these guys on the Reform podcast, they loved James White. So I start I start listening to James White and I start listening to his podcast called The Dividing Line. And I don't remember exactly how I got from that to learning about Sai and his work, but I'll tell you once I discovered um, Sai's trainings which you can watch on YouTube and I discovered the um, how to answer the fool film, man, I was hooked on presup, on presuppositionalism. As a matter of fact, let me tell you what I knew that this apologetic was going to be something that I could, I could really use to equip believers and to train believers. So I was actually working as a youth pastor and I did this retreat and I did an apologetics breakout. Sai, I don't know if I ever told you this. No, I'm, this is fascinating to me. So, okay. Okay. So I'm doing this uh, apologetics breakout session at the retreat. And of course, this is what I'm still a pastor. I hadn't started the Think Institute yet. And I had just gotten done watching your film. In fact, I showed it to one of my leaders as well. And he was like, what is this? This is, I mean, we were both like, this is incredible. And so what I did was I watched all, all the stuff that I could find from you. I, I think that's about when I listened to the um, unbelievable episode. And what I did was I essentially typed up all your argumentation and all your presentation. And I tried to kind of make it my own, but really 
it was just your stuff. And I um, put it all into this PDF and I put it on my Kindle. And then I, I used my Kindle to teach this, this apologetics breakout. And you know what I titled it? I called it how to, what did I say? How to answer, what did I say? How to overcome every possible objection to the Christian faith. And I had so I had a packed house for this breakout. Every student wanted to come in and uh, and hear this because they're like, "What? Is, you can answer every possible objection? How is that even possible? How is that a thing?" Well, I gave my presentation, which was really just your presentation, Sai. And afterwards, people came up to me, and I'm telling you, they were they were saying, "Um, you know, Joel, I've never felt so confident in my Christian faith." Thank you for this. I had no idea. You know, I, I've never felt so confident. And I've used, now over time, I've, I've studied it more. I've adapted it. It's it's more my own. I've now created my own curriculum for it and developed my own approach. Still based, of course, in presuppositionalism as we're going to define it. But I, I can't tell you, that is the response I get more often than not. It's usually, whoa, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand it better? Because it's such a paradigm changer. And then the the other common reaction that I get is, I've never felt so equipped, or I've never felt so bold. I've never felt so ready to defend my faith. And there is something about this apologetic that equips believers like no other apologetic does. And I really think it's because it's rooted in God's word. So that's a little bit of my backstory. Of course, I'm I'm married. I've got four kids. I didn't talk about any of that, but um, but that's you know, Sai, you you encouraged me over the summer. My first ministry is to my family, and uh, and my kids are, Lord willing, getting a theological education and an apologetic education as well. But maybe we should take some time now and define what is apologetics. And um, and what are we talking about when we talk? Yeah, first about of all, um, people think that I like to argue. And I don't. I like to finish arguments. Uh, you know, if there's an argument, I will enter in, into it. But I would prefer if everybody agreed with me. But uh, there's a oh saying that says, uh, arguing with a Dutchman is like wrestling with a pig in mud. After a while, you'll discover he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it appears that I like it, but but I, I actually don't. I prefer if people agreed with me. And there's a danger to this apologetic, too, because one of the things that I tell people is that the danger of this apologetic is that you're going to win arguments. I mean, the beauty of it is that you're going to win arguments, but the danger is that you're going to win arguments and people are going to credit you for it rather than giving glory to God. Because what you'll understand is that the Christian has the superior intellectual position, moral position, theological position, that we come from a superior position and um, we have to be careful not to lord that over our interlocutor, that we have to love them. And the more that I do this, and and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but uh, you know, I remember... One time somebody had you know, devoured my videos and then um, it was a, a couple of young men and they came up to me, they said, Sai, we did pre-sup on this guy last week. It was incredible. I said, never tell me that again. I said, tell me that you honored Jesus Christ as Lord. Yeah. It's not about winning arguments. As you'll see, the argument is already won. It's about confidently sharing your faith with the unbeliever you know, from a position that you have an argument that cannot be defeated. And I say that's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 21, 15, I will give you words and wisdom that your adversaries will not be able to resist or contradict. That is the power of our apologetic, the word of God. I had a fellow come up to me at a conference once, um, turned out to be a, a friend of mine afterwards. I just met him there. His name was Nate Stoyer. But he said, Sai, I want you to teach me. Um, I hear you're a really good apologist. All I do is answer with scripture. I said, don't listen to a word I say. I say, if you can answer every objection with Scripture, do it. So as far as your question, uh, a definition of apologetics, apologetics, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. If you were accused of a crime in ancient times, you gave your apologia. It does not mean to apologize. It means to give a reasoned defense of the truth of what you believe. And um, that's what we do as Christians. We, we present our worldview as truth, and we give a reasoned defense of what we believe, um, you know, for the consumer of those who would say otherwise. Okay, and when we talk about presuppositional apologetics, you know, that's a mouthful, and I think a lot of people get hung up on that title. What exactly is presuppositionalism or presuppositional apologetics or hashtag that presup? And <laughs> why don't we really use that phrase? You know, I know I don't use it that often. I know I don't, you don't really either, but but what is it and why don't we use that phrase? I think, um, um, 
Well, I don't use the phrase because a lot of times the big words are a turnoff, like apologetics. And uh, people will say, I don't have to do it because it's such a big word. I'm, I say, I'm sure glad they didn't call loving your neighbor phylogetics. Or they say, I don't have to do that either. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I don't use the term because it's not necessary. I don't care what you call the apologetic. My goal is to reach the lost. But the problem is you have to use terms to differentiate it from, I would say, different and I would say on occasion, unbiblical ways to defend the faith. So I am a presuppositionalist, but I don't really use the term because um, my presupposition is that God exists and his word is true. So I argue from that position. Yes, I'm a presuppositionalist to the core. I will not give up my presuppositions when I defend my faith. And you'll see that a lot of unbelievers, they complain about that fact, but they also realize that it's very difficult to argue against that position. And as far as the definition of the term, the best way that I found to define the term is to explain the difference between the standard approach of apologetics and what I do. Now, this is what I, I say to somebody. Somebody says that I don't believe in God. What does the person most often do? They say they give them evidence. And I say, where do you hear evidence most often in the secular world? Well, you hear it in different fields, but you might hear that very often in the court of law. In court, who do you give evidence to? You give evidence to the judge or the judge and jury. If an unbeliever comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God, and you give them evidence, who are you saying is the judge and jury? They are. And in what seat in that courtroom do we put God, the Lord of glory? We put him in the criminal's box. Now, God has given us some wonderful evidences. We can win that court case. But who is the judge? We've placed the unbeliever to the position of judge. And they could say, yes, your God exists, and now I'll worship him. But it doesn't make sense that God has to bow to them before they'll bow to him, because it shows that they are still the judge. As far as differentiating the two approaches... I say, imagine that um, you put a fossil in between uh, two PhD geologists. One's a Christian and one's atheistic. And you put that fossil between the two of them. And the believer looks at that fossil and says, um, thousands of years, Noah's flood. The unbelieving PhD looks at that same fossil and says, millions or billions of years. The exact same evidence, but they have different conclusions. They're both PhDs in their field. Why do they have vastly different conclusions? I submit not because of the evidence. They have different conclusions because of the beliefs they take to the evidence. And so we will all interpret evidences according to what we already believe, according to our foundational beliefs. We all do that. Christians do it. Unbelievers do it as well. What are those foundational beliefs called? Those are our presuppositions. So I say it makes no sense to examine evidences because all evidence will be interpreted according to our presuppositions. Now, if we have things, even as Christians, that disagree with our presuppositions, what do we do? We fall back on our presupposition. For instance... If an unbeliever were present to present me with evidence that dead people don't come back to life, I'd say, yeah, but my presupposition is that God exists, his word is true, and it happened in this instance. So it would not affect my belief that Jesus came, he rose from the dead. Because right. My presupposition is that his word is true. Now, let's say um, the unbeliever believed in billions of years, and you found dinosaur bone soft, soft tissue, which was done. And they actually raised money to have this carbon, uh, the soft tissue carbon dated. And the paleontologist in charge of that, uh, you could hear it's a phone call, it's on YouTube, you can listen to it. He said, um, carbon, carbon dating doesn't work on something that old. So he had a presupposition that this soft tissue was old for whatever reason. Now, let's say they did carbon date it and it came back to be a young age. Then he would have a presupposition, a rescuing device, which would support his presupposition that it was old. And we all do that. So it makes no sense to examine evidence what I do is I look at the presuppositions that we take to the evidence. And what are those presuppositions? Well, you need truth, you need logic, you need reason, you need all of those things, none of which can be made sense of without God. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. So as a Christian, I have a basis for the examining of, of evidence, and the unbeliever does not. So rather than examine the evidence, I go to the beliefs that we take to the evidence, and I show that without God, you can't make sense of what you're doing. Okay, so we sh we should probably talk about what evidence requires for evidence to be a meaningful um, category, a meaningful tool. What, let's say that you're speaking with uh, a friend. Let's say it's not a confrontational kind of encounter, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, a friend, someone you've been getting to know over the the years, and and he says to you, you know, Sai, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of Christianity. I, I'm I'm not uh, antagonistic towards it. And yet, it just seems to me, you know, I've, I've listened to Bart Ehrman, I've listened to Richard Dawkins. It seems to me like there just really isn't any evidence that these things actually happened, you know, historical evidence. Um, Cy, can you give me some evidence? 
I, I want to believe in your God. I, I want to believe in Christianity, but I can't believe in spite of the evidence. I can't have quote unquote blind faith. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Sai, is I've been mm-hmm. told similar things. How, how do you respond? Now, this isn't an adversary in the sense of this isn't a person who's angrily trying to refute you, um, at least not overtly, consciously. How do you respond to that? See, what Christians don't realize is when somebody says something like that, they just blaspheme God because the God of the Bible says that they know that he exists and they just called God a liar. Now, of course, we want to believe them as Christians. We want to believe that they really don't know that God exists. I mean, that's what we want to do. We, we want to you know, think that they're being sincere. And the Bible says that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So when they say that they don't believe that God exists, that they need evidence, they've actually blasphemed him. And I've come up with this analogy, and I think I've shared it with you before on the podcast, but let's say you're standing beside your lovely wife and somebody comes up to you and says, um, Joel, I think your wife is a prostitute. And then you say, well, uh, last night she was making dinner with me, and uh, I don't think she was walking the street that night. And the night before that, she was at Bible study. I don't think she was walking the street that night. And the night before that, she was visiting her parents. So I don't think my wife was walking the street. I don't believe my wife is a prostitute. Would you say that? (laughs) Would your wife be very happy if- Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you said, buddy, that's my wife you're Uh talking about. You better choose your next next words wisely because they basically- in a way, blasphemed your wife. Mm-hmm. Not only that, this person knows your wife and knows that she's not that. Right. And so I would say that's the same thing with God. I say, what is more dangerous for that person to blaspheme your wife or to blaspheme your God? Mm. So when they say that they don't have sufficient evidence for God, sure, they might say it very kindly and very nicely, but the Bible says they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. One thing we have to be careful is not to call them liars. Now, they might be outright lying, but the Bible calls them truth suppressors. And maybe on a later episode, we could talk about the difference there. Yeah. But they have just blasphemed God. So I think that when we enter into that conversation, we must keep that in mind. So when they say they don't have sufficient evidence for God, I might bring up, well, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says you do. And when you say that you don't, you're actually blaspheming the God that created you. And that's how I would start that conversation. And you know, I would point out that me sharing this evidence with them for the existence of God is very dangerous for them. Because the Bible says they have sufficient evidence for their condemnation. And I say that there are degrees of hell according to the amount of truth a person gets and rejects. And I say, I'm going to give you a lot of truth today. And if you reject that truth, this could be the worst day of your life. And often, you know, it depends on the uh, the situation as well. But I would ask the person, what evidence would convince you of the God who says you already have enough? And very often they give me a piece of evidence. They say, well, this evidence would convince me of the God that says you have enough. I said, no, you didn't understand my question. I said, which evidence would convince you of the God who says you already have enough? Mm -hmm. Because the God of the Bible says they have enough. Logically, no evidence could convince them of the God of the Bible who says they already have enough. It's a matter of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But I would unpack that because I'm a presuppositionalist. And whenever anybody asks a question, they're standing on something. Now, now don't get me wrong. When you see the debates, I um, I guess you would call me the presup-Nazi because I don't let them get away with any presuppositions where they're borrowing from the God of the Bible. I I come up with this analogy. I say, let's say there's there's, uh, two countries going to have a war, and one country has all the guns and ammunition, and the other country has zero. When does that war start? When one country gives the other country some guns and ammunition, and I'm not doing that. And very often, the interactions that I have are warlike, because they're people who are hostile to the faith, who want to ridicule God in a public forum. That might not be the case with your sister-in-law who says, well, this piece of evidence is, you know, it just really bothered me. If you solve this for me, then I'll become a Christian. And, you know, of course, I'm highly skeptical of that, but I'll say, you know, this, this evidence, it's actually not your problem. Your problem is that if you die tonight and you stand before the God that, you know, exists, you're going to be accountable for your sin against him. But why don't you share with me that problem that you're having with this evidence, and I'll try and explain to you from a Christian perspective how we deal with that. But I suspect that you're rejected offhand because you're just looking for reasons to be comfortable in your unbelief but share that with me Hmm. and they might share that evidence with you and then you say okay this is how i as a christian reconcile this and what very often is the case well what about this one what about this one right and it's just a it's a you're you're believing what they're saying you're following down that rabbit trail and i believe that you know very often it, it comes into a position where we're not honoring jesus christ as lord when we're believing the person but you know we have to be respectful of the person as well like i say i mean Get back to this scenario where the person thinks that your uh, your wife is a, a prostitute because they saw uh, your wife kissing somebody at the bus station. They say, look, buddy, that's my wife you're talking about. You better be very careful the next words out of your mouth. By the way, that was her brother. 
right. she was dropping him off. He was over for a visit. Right. You know, and she was just giving him a kiss goodbye. I know all about it. You know, and for you to say that is very date now. So that might be a way that I share evidence with somebody. And mm -hmm. same with the unbeliever. I say, look, I will share with you how we reconcile that as Christians, but understand that when I do this for you and you've been given this truth and you're rejected, it's not good for you. And I think, you know, the interaction you have with that person is a lot different than trying to apologize for God right. rather than explaining our faith in a way that honors him. Yeah. And in the scenario that you just mentioned, when I'm, you know, re explaining, look, this is what my wife was doing. I'm not doing it from a purportedly neutral position. I'm not going, well, let's step onto neutral territory and let's examine the evidence to see whether this is true about my wife. Instead, what I'm doing is based on a foundation of the relationship of my actual intimate knowledge of my wife, I'm presenting the truth and I'm explaining the situation. And you could call that giving evidence if you want, but I'm never abandoning my own, uh, my own presuppositions, my own uh, knowledge about my wife. And in the same way, when we're defending our knowledge about God and the truth about God, we don't step onto neutral territory as if there was such a thing and say, well, fine, let's examine the evidence together and let's just see where it leads. No, we say, look, this is true about God. And because this is true about God, here's why this other fact is true. Here's why, you know, the, the carbon dating on the dinosaur bone, the soft tissue, um, here's here's why there's still soft tissue it's because the earth is only this old it's because genesis is actually true but i'm i'm standing firmly on my own biblical presuppositions there rather than pretending to be neutral all right and we're not just saying that when we say stuff like this and this is what i tell people do not approach this apologetic with an open mind approach mm -hmm. it with an open book and i say so what is the fundamental assumption of the unbeliever in scripture the fool has said it in his heart there is no god psalm 14 1. And in my talks, I say, you know, too bad God never told us how we should engage the fool. Well, do not answer the fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Proverbs 26, verse 4. What is the fool's folly? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Do not answer him according to his folly, lest you be like him. So we don't say, well, let's pretend there's no God. Let's examine the evidence to try and conclude who, which one of us is right. That's exactly what Scripture tells us not to do. But what's the very next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5? answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now are we putting God on the shelf? Now are we saying, well, let's pretend there's no God and see who's right? No, now we're saying, okay, because God exists and you claim that he doesn't exist, answer him according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And a, a perfect example of that is in my first debate with Paul Baird, where he said to me, there is no certainty. And I just said to him, are you certain about that? And so... I answered him according to his presupposition that God did not exist and there was no certainty, and I turned the tables on him. And he said, there is no certainty. He made a certain knowledge claim of self-refuting nonsense. So I answered him according to his folly, so he wasn't wise in his own eyes. And, I, you know, a, the Proverbs is not a book on apologetics, but I think it deals perfectly with how we should deal with the unbeliever when they reject the God that the Bible says they know exists. Okay, so you made reference to something earlier when we were talking about evidence and you said look all these things aren't possible without god you know logic and can we talk about what does evidence presuppose so the unbeliever says i don't have enough evidence well we understand that the concept of evidence for evidence to be a thing certain things have to already be presupposed or, or you might say we have to have faith that certain realities about the world actually obtain that they're actually true what are those things? What does the use of evidence or the demand for evidence already presuppose? And then, Sai, why does all of that presuppose God? Right. Now, um, one a little correction, because I used to say it exactly how you mentioned it as well, and I try not to do it because it's actually logically fallacious to state it that way. What does evidence presuppose? Hmm. That's a fallacy of reification. Evidence can't presuppose anything. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So, well, I mean, but the thing is, I just do that as well because uh, I got to be very, evidence doesn't presuppose anything, but when we use the term evidence, what do we as Christians presuppose? And I've written down a definition of evidence here. It's the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. So, when we use the term evidence, there are things that we presuppose. We presuppose that there's a concept of truth, for example. And then that's what I would ask the unbeliever. In order to use evidence, you presuppose that there's a concept of truth. So what is truth in your worldview? Could you give us that definition of evidence again? Sure. 
um, the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. Okay. So, you know, it, there's many presuppositions involved in that. The, the uh, validity of your cognitive faculties, which is one that the unbeliever cannot justify without God. The uniformity of nature, the fact that the words that you're uttering when you read a definition mean the same thing they did five seconds ago. The laws of logic, the concept of truth, the concept of knowledge. So there's so many things involved in even opening your mouth to speak a word that I'm saying that you cannot justify without the God of the Bible. And what are the unbelievers doing? They're granting them all of this. They're granting them the tools that Jesus Christ has given us to examine our world, to live in this world, to love our Lord. He's granted us those tools, and we're just giving them to the unbeliever. And I'm saying, no, these things belong to Jesus Christ. If you want to have this discussion with me, you need to justify them without him. And that's something that they simply cannot do. See, the question people you know, often say, well, the atheist, uh, he doesn't have to justify his belief that there is no God. He doesn't have to justify a lack of belief. And I don't care how people define atheism or what they claim. But when they say that they don't have to justify their lack of belief in God, I say, okay, fine. I'm not asking you to justify your lack of belief in God. But with a lack of belief in God, there are things that you assume. You assume that, there's, that, the nature, that nature is uniform, that there's such thing as truth, logic, Right. And uh, morality and knowledge, all those things. Those are things that you use in your worldview, and you don't give glory to God. So if you're going to have this discussion with me, I want you to tell me how you justify those things without God, how you can make sense of them. And of course, they can't. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but you'll see that most of, mostly that's how I used to defend my faith. And I still do with the philosophy student. But most often, the people that you engage are not the philosophy student. And so even though these arguments are true and they're valid, they're powerful, more often than not, I keep them in my back pocket knowing that they can't know anything without God and just knowing that it's a big smokescreen and mostly sharing the gospel with them and saying, look, you know, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that later on, but that's not your problem. Your problem is if you die tonight, you're going to stand before God. And what are you going to say to him? You know, I, I tell them it's not a court case when they stand before God, but how are you going to give an account to the God that you know exists when you die? Yeah. And they might have an objection and sure you can deal with it presuppositionally. But the more that I do this, the more that I find that we're spinning our wheels just like the evidentialist is. Rather than using evidence to try and convince people that God exists, we try and use philosophy. And one thing that I say, let's say that you study all this philosophy, the preconditions of intelligibility or whatever, all true and valid. And you have this wonderful long conversation with the unbeliever. And your wife comes along and says, I know that you know that God exists. And if you die in your sin unrepented, you're going to hell. And if you want to know how to be made right with God, I love you enough that I'll, I'll tell you and I'll be praying for you. That person has tragedy in their life the next day. Who are they coming to? They're not coming to the person who argued philosophy with them for six hours or evidences. They're going to the person who saw through them, who said what the Bible says. And the more that I do this, the more that I do that. And the presuppositions are all true and valid. But what I find is the people on the street, it's a lot of time it's intellectual bullying because now you know what epistemology means and the person on the street doesn't. Right. And, and we've, had these, we've had these terrible arguments shoved down our throats our entire lives. Now we have a powerful argument and we, we want to return to favor right. instead of loving them. Yeah. And, you know, you see Jesus do both, really, doesn't he? Jesus, when, when he's refuting the scribes who are accusing him of casting out demons uh, using the power of Beelzebul, Jesus uses essentially a presuppositional argument and and you know uh and refutes them. And he is he pulls no punches with the scribes and the Pharisees. And then uh, you know, with the woman at the well, he says, Go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus doesn't go, Oh, well, you know, uh you claim to be a Samaritan, you claim to believe in God's word, but here's how you're violating all God's principles. Instead, he goes, yeah, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. He speaks directly to her heart and shows her relationally that he's the Messiah, and she gets the message. She understands in that moment, she sees forgiveness in the face of Jesus Christ, and using love and using uh, a human connection, Jesus speaks forgiveness to this woman. And she's convinced. She goes back to her town and tells everyone that she met the Messiah. And it's so fascinating to look at scripture and to see the different approaches Jesus uses. It's the same Jesus. Jesus, he's never neutral. He's he's always Lord. He's always speaking with authority. But sometimes he has a, a strong hand and other times he's he's compassionate and and loving and relational. Do you, do you see that as being an analogous here, Sai? Do you see that? Yeah, you know, one, one of the things that really drove home for me once is I, I was at um, actually Victoria Park near where I lived in Canada. And a friend of mine was um, 
talking with this unbeliever, and I was within earshot. I was just standing right next to him, and he was talking about the precondition of intelligibility, all the arguments that I would use, and it was actually turning my stomach, listening to him, you know, basically parrot what I'd been saying. And then he was running into, uh, you know, roadblocks, so he called me over, and he said, you know, sorry, you know, can you help me out with this guy? And my first thing I said to him is, I said, why do you hate God? You know, then it wasn't a topic, a, a conversation about philosophy anymore. Now it was, you know, getting to the root of the issue. Of course, he said he didn't, but then I exposed to them biblically why, in fact, you know, he did hate God. And then, you know, we get away from the philosophy. Again, you know, I think there's a place for that. But I've come up with this analogy. And I say, let's say you're about to talk to a, a group of atheists or a group of moral, Mormons or a group of Muslims. And you could have anybody in history standing beside you other than Jesus Christ. You had a time machine. And let's say you want to talk to the group of atheists or Muslims or Mormons. And you had an expert in Mormonism or an expert in Islam or, or myself, you know, who might deal with the atheists. Or you can maybe bring the Apostle Peter. I say, which of those people would you want? And I say, if you select anybody over the Apostle Peter, I probably can't help you. But I imagine most Christians say, I can have the Apostle Peter with me? Yeah, I want him. So when the Apostle Peter would uh, show up and he'd about to join you in that conversation, would he say, well, I got to go to the library first. I got to find out about, you know, the King Fall of Discourse and I have to learn about the precondition of intelligibility. And this is the question that I ask. I say, imagine those conversations that the expert in Islam has with the person, the expert in Mormonism or myself or the Apostle Peter has with the unbeliever. And think to yourself, which one could you do? And most Christians say, well, I could probably do what the Apostle Peter said. He just said, you know, I walk with Jesus. Do you want to know how to be right, made right with him? And I think that's an indication to me that we're probably doing it wrong. If the Apostle Peter would be tapping me on the shoulder and say, precondition of intelligibility, Sai, seriously? I mean, uh, come on, this person's going to hell if he dies unrepentant. You know, so is there a place for it? Yes, I do believe that there is. But the more that I do this, the more I get away from the philosophy and get to the heart of the issue. And the philosophy is more, I think, to, uh, you know, clean up some of the issues that might fall out of that conversation. Now, didn't the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 appeal to the poets and the philosophers of the Greeks? And, you know, doesn't that demonstrate in a way that it is beneficial to be well-versed in the, the zeitgeist, in the popular philosophy? Or, you know, nowadays we might say the Richard Dawkinses or, you know, the um, Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world. I mean, is that, would you say that that's, that's not beneficial? Well, I think in that case, it was maybe more descriptive of what Paul did than prescriptive of, we, of what we have to do. Now, I can just speak from my own experience that when I quote philosophers and people on the street with unbelievers, they don't care. <laughs> you know? they don't, and I think what I've noticed, too, is that in years past, they might have cared. If you talk to people on year, in years past and you said you're being inconsistent, they would care about it. Now they don't care. You know, we're at a stage now where I think that quoting these philosophers and calling out inconsistency People don't really care anymore. You know, right. we've gone to such an extent that that these arguments, you know, I think a lot of times we're just spinning our wheels. Now, I know the Apostle Paul did it. And is there a place for it? Yes, of course, there was a place for it then. And I think there's a place for it now. But what I found more often than not, even on the university campuses, is that when you quote one of their philosophers, they don't care. Right. So I like to get to the heart of the issue, you know, where their heart is at and why they're actually um, espousing, um, espousing a denial or a hatred of the God that they know exists. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think God's word is very powerful. And, you know, it, it's been an amazing thing that I've noticed myself is when I quote scripture, what you think might happen really doesn't happen. You might expect that they would go, oh, that's just an old book written by Bronze Age goat herders. You know, you hear that sometimes. Right. And you know, that has no relevance. More often than not, though, when I'm in conversation with an actual skeptic, an actual unbeliever, and I quote scripture, which refutes what they're saying or answers what they're saying, more often than not, the it, I can see it having an impact on their heart and mind. I mean, I can see it, Cy, right. in, in the conversation. It There's something about God's word that is more, <laughs> no surprise there, but you can see it in real time that God's word is more powerful than my best philosophical argument. Right. And it's sharper not, than a two-edged sword. So, too bad that's nowhere in Scripture. Right? <laughs> right. If only there was a verse that said, you know, how sharp it is and how it could cut between, I don't know, soul and spirit or something like that. Yeah. So let's talk about Scripture then as, uh, as we begin to, to round the final uh, lap here. What would be some go-to scriptures for our atheistic skeptic friend who says, you know, like I, I need evidence? And we've had this conversation with them. We've we've shown them that the very concept of evidence presupposes God, or or I should say, okay, the person who wants to use evidence has to presuppose certain things. Now, what would be some scripture 
for us to share with this this friend or this individual? Well, the go-to verse that, of course, we go to as presuppositions is Romans chapter 1, yeah. um, where it says that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became foolish, or and their, their foolish hearts were darkened. And, you know, of course, we have to do this with gentleness and respect as well, understanding that except for the grace of God, that's us. But, you know, say what Scripture says about them. And even when I say that Scripture calls them a fool, you know, I, I like to... Um, soften that blow i say it's it's not an intellectual complaint against the unbeliever because a lot of the people that i debate are actually i would submit far smarter than i am but it's a moral charge for willfully suppressing the truth and unrighteousness that's the folly of atheism and you know i, I might explain that to him but um those are the type of verses that i would go to that the bible says that they know that god exists and that they're without excuse especially like i say in romans chapter one but there are many verses that call the unbeliever the fool and of course the film that we did is called how to answer the fool and a lot of people are, um, they don't like the title. I say, well, then you won't like what Scripture says. <laughs> Although it is, it is quite in your face. Now, do I go up to an unbeliever? I don't think I've ever called an unbeliever a fool. But I might, you know, show them what Scripture says about those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But, um, you know, I think that what we need to do as believers is make Christ sweet to those people. And sure, we can, um, I think, you know, like even Bonson uses these evidences and these arguments might be there to remove some intellectual debris. Because um, people have been, you know, heard all these arguments for their entire lives, heard these objections to Christianity, and they develop a wall, and they, they, they sit on that wall, you know, and they don't let anything pass there in their rejection of God. So, you know, sometime it might be a place to remove that intellectual debris, to remove that and show that this is not a problem for Christianity. Okay. Now, for any skeptics, atheists, unbelievers, I know we both have... Um, atheists and self-professed atheists and and those who would say that they don't believe in god who follow our work i know you've got you've got many what what's the good news what is the gospel let's say that someone is watching and and what we've said about god and his word and suppressing the truth is is uh, hitting home with them and they're feeling convicted right now Sai, what is the good news for skeptics, atheists, non-believers, people who are maybe just now realizing that they've been living in rebellion against God and want to get right with God. What, what do we want to tell them? When I share the gospel with people, I like to first start, about, start off with the condition of man. Um, in Genesis 1.27, it says that we are created in the image of God. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says that we're supposed to be imitators of God. And what we have done, we fall short of that. We sin. And so I might ask the person, why is stealing wrong? And people will give me all sorts of reasons. It's illegal. I say, well, they can legal to make it legal tomorrow for all you know. Um, and they say, well, people get mad when you steal their stuff. Well, you get happy when you steal their stuff and get to use it, you know, because you didn't pay for it. And I shoot down all of their um, objections, all of the reasons why stealing is wrong. I say, stealing is wrong for one reason and one reason only, because God is not a thief. And we are created in his image to represent him, to honor him. When you steal and the person sees you, they actually see you calling God a thief. And that's why it's wrong. I say, why is adultery wrong? Adultery is wrong because it destroys marriages. That's very true. But that's ultimately not why it's wrong. Adultery is wrong because it destroys um, families. Also very true. But that's ultimately not why it's wrong. Right. Adultery is wrong because God is perfectly faithful. When you commit adultery, you are calling God an adulterer. So that's why sin is, in, in fact, sinful. Because we're created in the image of God. And the moral law is a representation of the character of God. And we violate that every day. Even as a Christian, I violate that every day. And that has put us at enmity with God. In Habakkuk 1.13, I believe it says that no sin can stand in his presence. And we're all going to die one day. And we are all full of sin. And we have this sin debt. And according to Scripture, there's only one way that that sin debt can be paid with a blood sacrifice. And the, only, the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament had to be perfect lamb, perfect sheep, no blemish or anything like that. But we need the perfect sacrifice for all mankind. And God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to pay that price on a Roman cross for people like you and me. That he died, he was crucified and buried, and three days he rose from the dead, conquering both sin and death. And he was witnessed by over 500 people. And if we put our trust that Christ died in a payment for our sin, and that he was rose again, redeeming us, you know, for all mankind, that we can be in God's presence, because now, instead of looking our, at our sinfulness, he looks upon his son on the cross. And if you are watching this today, and know that you're filled with sin, there is nothing that you, in, a, in and of yourself, can do to be made right with God. Even the best person out there cannot earn their way into salvation. 
but people recognize and they repent and understand that Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price for sinners like you and me. So I encourage people who are watching right now that they need to repent and put their trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when I tell people to repent, I like to explain what repentance is because very often people will tell them to repent and not tell them what repentance is. And this is a question that I ask maybe even the believers watching. Is repentance something you say, something you think, or something you do? Most Christians out there will say repentance is something you do. And technically that's false. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. Mm -hmm. Repentance is something you think. So the unbelievers out there who are watching this need to change what they think about God. Now the next question is, how do you who are watching this change how, what you think about God? And you know what the Bible says? You can't. And then at that point I say, well, have a nice day. <laughs> now that would be terrible news. That the Bible says you must change what you think about God. But the Bible also says you can't because if I tell you that you must change your mind about God, change what you think about God, and you go and do it, then you could lord it over the person who hasn't done it and say that you're better than them. Right. The Bible also says that repentance is the gift of God so that nobody can boast. So that if you're watching this here today and you're not right with Jesus Christ, that you need to repent, you need to change your mind about God. And the way you do that is you get on your knees and you cry out to him. Hmm. And you say, Lord God, please change my mind about who you are, about the sacrifice of your son, that you could put your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ bowed by the power of his Holy Spirit, that you might be made right with him. Now, does that mean that I as a Christian live perfectly? Far from it. But now I'm saved. And like the bumper sticker says, I'm not perfect. I'm forgiven. Amen. And so I could put my trust in Jesus Christ who has paid the sin debt for people like you and me. Now, people think that I try to live right to I try to live good in order to get to heaven. But that's false because nobody can live good enough to get to heaven. I don't try to live good to get to heaven. I try to live good because I'm going in thankfulness for the one who paid that price for me. And that's what I encourage anybody watching this to cry out to him and um, hope that God will grant them repentance, that they might have the peace which passes all understanding by putting the trust in Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. Amen. That is truly good news for skeptics, good news for good news for religious people, good news for anybody who's watching who has not yet repented and received that sacrifice of Jesus Christ and believed in him as, as Lord. Well, um, man, brother, this was a great discussion, great conversation. And um, thank you for for joining me on it. And, uh, you know, prayerfully, I've been praying a lot for this show. Uh, prayerfully, this is going to have a really great impact on not only believers, but on skeptics, atheists, non-believers, people who believe differently than we do, but who, who do not yet know God uh, through Jesus Christ. And um, how can, uh, let's just do a quick plug before we go. How can people follow your work and uh, keep up with the kind of work that you're doing and maybe even support your work? Sure. My website is proofthatgodexists.org and you can go there and see all the videos and um, films that, that we've done and um, even the audio um, debates that I've done. I have two YouTube channels. One of them is Proof That God Exists, which is most of my open air preaching and debates. And also the Answer Anyone channel where you can find How to Answer the Fool. And also my my documentary of the debate that I did with Matt Delahunty is on there. So that, that channel is called Answer Anyone. So you could go to either of those YouTube channels or go to my website, proofthatgodexists.org. And if anybody would like to su support me, I have a Patreon as well. And my Patreon is patreon.com slash Sy10B, S-Y-E-T-E-N. B, and if they'd like to support me, I'd much appreciate that as well. Wonderful. All right. And also, if you want to support this show, the answer, anyone with Saitem Brugen, Kate, um, we're still working on that you sound. Uh, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash answer anyone, patreon.com slash answer anyone. And I just put up our first post on there today uh talking about how we're recording oh i guess you know what this is this is going to be posting one week from today so um check it out and by the time you all see this there'll be a week's worth of posts on there and um look please be praying for this show please uh be praying for Sai, praying for me with the think institute and uh you, you know pray that today's church today's believers would be equipped to defend the truth of God's word and the truth of the Christian message and the, the biblical worldview. If you want to get more information about the Think Institute, you can go to thethink.institute. And I've really enjoyed this. Be sure to tune in next episode as we prepare to answer anyone. Mm -hmm.